depending on whether there are already any videos available within that frame of, of keywords, you could get your, your business or your client on page one almost immediately. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Digital Marketing Masters, one of our last few episodes in our 2022 season of interviewing authors of business and productivity books. Today, we have Adrian Roop. Adrian, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on your podcast. Yeah, when uh, when we ran across one another and I read about your book a little more and what you do, I was really excited to have you on the show just because video is such an important thing right now. And Adrian's book is called How to Make Videos That Influence People. And Adrian is award-winning short filmmaker, a TEDx producer, crowdfunder, best-selling author. He even produced content for the 2008 Obama for America YouTube team. And I think that this this book is very, very timely. And uh, we'll get to more to that in a minute. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is, why did you write the book, How to Make Videos That Influence People? Oh, thank you so much, um, Matt. That's a that's a great question. Again, great to be on your show. Yeah, video is such an interesting space because there, there's so many different ways to go about it, and so many different schools of thoughts. And you know, should it cost a lot of money? Should it cost no money? You know, how long should it be? So, so many questions that people have. And although I think there there's no easy one, you know cut and paste answer to those questions. I think there there is a good answer to each question depending on the client. So the reason I wrote the book was because while I was producing TEDx events here in Los Angeles or, or attending other startup events to go and meet, you know, founders and learn about startups, what I found is that I would go to these events and I would invariably find myself talking to one person who seemed very interested in video and seemed very interested in, you know, how, how they could make videos for their business or their startup or, or their service. And invariably I'd find myself being cornered by that person who wanted to <laughs> pick my brain and kind of extract as much information from me about how they could go home and, and make videos that weekend to help their business and so, you know, I would talk to that person and I would be as generous as possible and I'd, I'd offer ideas and insights and we'd brainstorm creative approaches and you could, you could go a little left, you could go a little right, it could be this size, it could be that size, you know, and I'd invariably leave a little frustrated because first of all, I had this kind of sinking feeling that whatever we had discussed or whatever suggestions or ideas I had would be forgotten by the next day. <laughs> and at the same time, I was losing out on what my objective was, which was to be at this networking event and network, you know, and meet as many people as possible and explore the event and, you know, and, and broaden my social network and circle. So that's why I wrote the book because I thought this was a really good kind of win-win, a solution for, for everyone concerned. So now when I find myself at an event and someone wants to pick my brain about video, I'll give them 
you know, my best five minutes of, of advice or insight and, you know, maybe challenge them with a question or two. And then I'll say, look, if I were to sit down with you for an hour and give you all this, the kind of best practices advice on what you could do, all of that's in my book. And it's a quick read. It's under a hundred pages. It's something you can have on your smartphone or your computer. It's only available as an ebook. It's not even available as hard copy intentionally. So it's, it's there as a quick reference guide on your phone. And the idea is if you have that book handy, or if you've skimmed through the hundred pages, it would get you closer to what I would do if I was there helping you make a video with your phone on the weekend. And, and the things that I would do differently to the way what a beginner might do. So I think, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show. And, and one of the reasons I think this is so timely is that video has essentially exploded online. And I know people have been saying that for years. But if you look at the actual chart of the amount of video that's being consumed and you include advertising video and social media video into that, uh, it's like off the charts, right? Especially in the days of TikTok and Instagram reels and YouTube shorts and, and, you know, including video, vertical video in there and businesses, especially small businesses, they've got the equipment, right? The equipment is cheap enough that any business can afford it or they can use their phone or whatever, right? They can get some inexpensive lights, you know, they have distribution so that they can, you know, anybody with a credit card can show video to thousands of people every day, or they can put it on, you know, YouTube, TikTok, etc. But the problem is nobody has sat down with business owners and said, this is how you shoot a, a better video, right? <laughs> the knowing, having the equipment and doing the thing right are completely different things. Yeah, hundred percent. So, what what do you think makes the biggest difference? You know, for somebody who's has the has the ability to shoot a video but doesn't really know how, you know, to make it kind of more professional or improve their their chance of influencing someone. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's such an interesting and it's actually quite a difficult question, Matt. Because good, I think, is a sliding scale, right? Like good. Is, is relevant. It depends on what you're comparing it to. I almost like to try and reverse engineer as much as possible from the audience you're speaking to and the objective you're trying to attain. So you preface this by, by mentioning the explosion of video online, and that's so true. You, you know, you're, you're an SEO guru, so you probably would know more about SEO than me. But one of the things that I it may have changed a little with the changing algorithms and things, but with a connection between Google and YouTube, one of the things I would do is I would make YouTube videos to help rank my clients and I could get them on page one within 24 to 48 hours by making a strategic keyword video for them. So the same way you might write a blog post using SEO keywords, you could do the same thing in a video and depending on how competitive those keywords are, and depending on whether there are already any videos available within that frame of, of keywords, you could get your, your business or your client on page one almost immediately. Yeah, that tactic actually still works for kind of longer, very specific terms. Anything with any competition these days is kind of a battle, but... yeah. 
Yeah, so specific. And I, you know, the specificity for that, I would try and go regional, you know. So if someone has a, a regional business, perhaps, you know, like one of the people on your podcast might have a, a business in a specific locale, you could do SEO relevant to that geolocated area or that map or whatever. Uh, it could be in the form of a review video or, or whatever it is, something user-generated but that would be a good goal. But in terms of making good videos or, or making videos that influence people, I think it, it really comes down to to knowing your audience and, and back into the kind of old school customer avatar or audience avatar and understanding what is going to connect with them. It, I'm a big fan of of Simon Sinek for for this sort of thing and, and his book and his TED Talks where he he attempts to reframe the start with why, you know, and he talks about the difference between how a company like Apple does their marketing and messaging versus the way a company like HP does or used to do their marketing or messaging. Now everybody's trying to be more like Apple and, and make videos with a white background. <laughs> but essentially it comes from start with why, you know, and in, in his TED talk, he says, you know, look, Apple, the, the Apple frame is, you know, we're, we're a group of people, we're a tribe who believes in doing things differently, you know, and, and that is reflected in how we design our products. They don't look like anything you've seen before. Whereas HP would go, we make computers. It has a processor that's this fast. It has a hard drive that that's this big. It's available in gray. <laughs> and, and it's and it's it's kind of your mid-level or low level on the price spectrum, you know. And so it's, you, you can tell by history in terms of which messaging and marketing approach works better. So I always try to get my clients to start from why, you know, figure out their own why, which is, um, which is sometimes it's not as easy as it sounds. Very often what people will do is they'll take their what and they'll dress it up like a why, you know, which is not the case. I think really putting the time and the energy into distilling that why and even testing it uh, among a peer group and, and really figuring it out helps you. And once you have that sort of ele elevator pitch down and you have your why down, I think you're enabled to uh, make videos that resonate. And the rest are, you know, details in terms of how much production value you put in. I, I was reading this marketing book recently that talked about the world's, uh, I forget his name, but the world's most famous violin player who plays the world's most expensive Stradivarius violin. This guy plays a $3 million Stradivarius that, that is, you know, centuries old. There's only one of them in the world. And, and at concerts, he, he, he makes, you know, thousands of, do of dollars a minute for his performances. And they did a psychological test where they put the same guy in the New York subway with his same violin uh, and his violin case open for people to walk by and he played the same set of incredible classical music and he got a grand total of $38 of, of tips. <laughs> so I think it just speaks to where you play your Stradivarius and, and who you play it for. And, and that's really the essence of it. Well, there's also like the bar, the, the, the bar of, of expectation is different depending upon the platform that you're going to be delivering on. Totally. You know, I think there's an interesting, you know, you talk about the study about the guy with the violin. There's another super interesting study. Uh, this is a fairly old one in the marketing world. And 
what they did is they essentially split a restaurant into two rooms and one of them was set up with all the white tablecloths and the silver silverware and, you know, crystal glasses and flowers on the tables. And the other one was like, you know, crappy old tables and, you know, mismatched salt and pepper shakers and mismatched silverware. Right. And then the kitchen took all the food that they made, cut it in two. And so it was identical. Right. And one went to one side and one went to the other and then people rated it and they rated how much they would pay for that meal and things like that. And everybody in the fancy dining room said the food tastes better and was more expensive. Right. And so the setting makes a difference, but there's also an expectation. There's a bar, right? If I go into a restaurant by a famous chef, you, you have an expectation of how the service is going to be. What is it going to look like? Right. The atmosphere, the music, like everything is is part of that expectation. And I think video is the same way. If I own a pizza shop that's on the corner of a street, we deliver within a few kilometer radius or a few mile radius. There's not an expectation that my video needs to look like one made by Apple. Right. Right. I think that scale, that sliding bar of of how good does your video need to be? is, is going to depend on where you're delivering it and who you're delivering it to. hundred percent. You know, if I had a, a client with a pizza shop, what I would say to them is that your, your video would, has to be funny. You know, every, every pizza commercial that I see on television for Domino's or whoever it is, invariably it's funny. And so that seems to be the default, you know? So my, what I would say to that client is how can we make your video funny? It doesn't have to be high production value. We don't have to shoot it with the budget of a Domino's commercial, but how can we identify with the specific humor or, or, you know, something eclectic about that particular community that identifies with, with them? You know, pizza is something that's communal. Invariably, you share it with your family or friends while you're kind of kicking back and watching watching the football or, or whatever it might be. So how can we tap into that energetically? Yeah, I think... Um Regional stuff as well, you know, as you mentioned, works really good for helping with with search and stuff like that. But I think you also need to leverage that in video where you can. You know, an, an interesting example is um, my wife and I were just watching the it's called the Great Canadian Baking Show. And it's just a bunch of people in a tent. And they bake stuff. But they always have these cuts of B-roll where they show like the plants and the flowers and the birds and, and, you know, where is the tent located and, and, you know, rivers and streams and lakes and stuff that are around the area. So it gives it this, you know, this feel of, of you can get the location, you get the, yeah, the context of the location as well as they have something that this very odd, like post-processing of some kind that they do on that show where everything's very bright. It's very high brightness, high contrast. You can tell they've turned it up on the video, like after shooting it. And it, it looks every, every, like the whole show looks like an Instagram filter, right? <laughs> but it does have an aesthetic to itself. And I think that's another thing that people forget a lot about, like let alone even knowing that post-processing is an actual thing you know, that you can make your videos all look the same doing some kind of processing. Yeah. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I, it, it's, it's, it's such an interesting space. And obviously this is something that someone like me obsesses about in terms of post-production and refinement. You know, you, you talked a little bit about, and thank you for that comparison of, of eating in a, in a, 
you know, a beautifully laid out restaurant with, you know, crystal uh, glasses and, and China crockery and, you know, and, and setting that atmosphere that people will then feel like the food tastes better or it's a higher end experience because of the, the environment. And, and um, that absolutely does come into play in terms of the quality that you put into your, your video, depending on who the audience is. Something I, I kind of wrestle with it on a daily basis is the question of why would someone pay me a lot of money to make a video for them when they could make it themselves with their phone? And I face that question in the mirror every day. And it's, it's a really interesting one. And I, I've actually come to enjoy it. What I've come to realize is that they, they do pay me for exactly that reason they they expect the fine dining experience <laughs> when they bring me on but the fine dining experience or or you know to use another metaphor the perfume bottle versus the actual perfume you know i see them they're the perfume and the story they have to tell is the perfume and, and i'm there to provide the best perfume bottle that i can but um that that wrapping, that presentation, the quality of how it's shot, the post-processing, the creative direction, all of that, you know, the timing of the editing has to be at the service of what they want to achieve and the people who they want to influence and how they want to influence them. Sometimes that service that I offer, the reason why they'll pay me is because I can do it fast. You know, one of my newest clients and my favorite clients who I've worked with multiple times, they've had me back numerous times, is a huge uh, national medical health group. Anyone who looks at my LinkedIn profile would, will learn more about them. But they they own hospitals and, you know, research facilities. And, you know, they're a $22 billion organization. And they, interestingly enough, are not concerned about cinematography or, you know, what kind of camera or, or, or how high end it might be. Their priority often, number one is speed. Like, can they get something done that's good and can they get it done fast? Invariably, I'm coming in to be of service to them because they have a project that's important that has been forgotten about or their in-house creative team is tapped out and doesn't have the bandwidth. But this thing still needs to be done and it needs to be done by next week. You know, <laughs> so they'll call me and I started working with them during the pandemic, which was amazing because nobody's getting in front of any, anyone. I mean, cameramen had no work. So I, you know, I no one would have me come and film an interview with them. All of this had to be done on Zoom, all remotely. So it's pretty wild. And it was such a fun experience for me. I mean, fun and frustrating. I, listen, I would much rather have been there with my camera and my lenses and, and have full control of the lighting and the environment and have the eye contact and have that anthropological connection through the eyes that you get when you talk to someone. I'd have preferred that, but I didn't have that opportunity. I, I could only do it via Zoom. So we did it via Zoom. And I realized one of the key values that I could provide is that I could be on a Zoom call with 10 minutes of warning, no preparation, not knowing who I would be speaking to. And I could speak to one of their highest level executives, interview them, for 30 minutes and extract really solid sound bites that I could then use in an edit, although it was recorded off of a webcam, you know, and that was, that was of 
value. So it was so interesting. I would, I would like get these emails from my client. Hey, can you be on in 10 minutes? Talk to our chief medical officer. This is the person who is responsible for tens of thousands of doctors nationally and writes policy that influences their daily lives. One of the most intensely brilliant and intellectual people you could ever speak to. And so it's pretty wild. Yeah, sure. You know, so I went on in 10 minutes and we had just a very human conversation about why she does what she does. Got a really solid interview. I will say that before recording, I did get 20 minutes to refine uh, how she looked on webcam. So I had her basically reorient herself. You know, everybody appears on a webcam and they look like Edward Snowden. They have this like bright window behind them and they're in full silhouette anonymous mode. And so you have to kind of move them around the room in such a way that you get a little bit of light in their face and you can see the eyes and you can adjust it. So I got 20 minutes to micromanage where she was sitting in the room and what the orientation was. And I got her to stack the laptop up on a few books. And, uh, and the other thing I did was I had her use her phone as an audio recording device. And so she recorded the whole conversation on a voice memo and then sent me that file. So I got the full native recording off of her phone, which sounded great. And that's more than half of it is the actual quality of the voice. So we did it that way. And I knocked out this great little video for them in a couple of days. They used it very effectively and loved it and kept having me back for more and more. And then earlier this year, finally, I got my first opportunity to actually shoot in person for them, which I loved. And we shot like six interviews in a day. Just me, didn't have a budget for a crew. So I did it all myself, sound, shooting, everything. And that was a story about COVID survivors and, and how they had helped keep people alive with their philanthropic initiative uh, during COVID and, and by doing things scientifically with ECMO machines that hadn't been done elsewhere. So that was great. And I really enjoyed shooting that in person. But it can be done in person with, you know, great cameras and it can be done on a webcam as well. It really comes down to the storytelling. Right. And, you know, there's some really good tips there on, you know, being on Zoom or, or whatever, you know, Microsoft Teams or whatever you use. And, I find this a lot. So I'll go into, let's say it's like a networking event, a speed networking or something, right? Where it's online, there's going to be a lot of people on Zoom. So there's going to be 20 to 50 people on this call. And there's like myself, maybe one other person. And anyone who is either a videographer or a photographer looks great on Zoom. And everybody else is either washed out or dark or, you know, silhouetted. Right. And there's some really simple ways that you could do it. Right. Like when I have my camera on, you, you know, I have intentional things in the background. You know, there's my book and, and stuff like that. Right. I have my camera at basically eye level. It's a little high right now because my chair's down lower, but I have my window to my left, you know, and I don't have it on my video right now that we're using, but I have lights, right? So I just turn those on and I just, I bought a couple of ring lights off Amazon for like 60 bucks each and put some nice stuff in the background. And I moved my camera up on top of my screen. And when I used to do it with my laptop, I just did exactly what you said. I put a few really big books under it so that the camera's at eye level and it just looks amazing, right? Compared to everybody else. And 
you know, talk about making a first impression. Absolutely. And, you know, eye level is an important thing. Like that's one of the other things I did. And, and this is maybe a good tip is um, I, uh, for the same medical client, we're doing it all on Zoom, right? And so before we started recording calls, I said to my client, okay, cool. We're doing it on Zoom. We've got two requests. One is to do with sound. One is to do with picture. For sound, I'd like you to please mail everybody a $15 microphone off of Amazon that they can plug into their USB and actually get a lavalier microphone that they can clip on and we can get good quality sound. And then I used the the phone as a redundant additional recording, which actually ended up sounding better because it was natively recorded and it wasn't going through IP. And then the other one was pretty much in line with what you're saying, Matt, in, in terms of how the, the eye line or how high the camera is. Amazon has a, a collection of these great little stands. They're about $15. And it's almost like a little beach deck chair that you can fold up and stick in your in your you know, carry bag, but it sits underneath the laptop. And what it does is it tilts the, um, the screen or the, the back of the laptop up and it, it elevates that camera in like about two inches, which is essential. You know, I'm using one while I'm talking to you now, but if I were to remove it, it would bring that, the laptop camera down about two inches and you'd end up looking up my nose, which is not a flattering look. <laughs> You can see everybody on Zoom. They're always like, you're either looking up their nose or their camera is, you know, too close or too far from them, you know, and you get, I mean, varying degrees of problems. But, you know, if it's too far, then they don't look good because the camera is minuscule, right? Also, buying a separate webcam, if you do have to use a laptop, I bought a 4K webcam with stereo sound recording for like $129. Like if you're going to be on Zoom and things like that all the time, 100% worth it. And you know, it's interesting talking about native recording. We use Squadcast and there's there's a few other apps like this and it records your audio on your computer and my audio on my computer and then it uploads it after we're done. So we get a much cleaner recording and we get separate tracks for each person. So then my editor can go in and, you know, if I'm like <coughs> during the show, you can just cut that out from my audio track while you're talking. Have you, it does, does it do the same with video, Matt? It does. It does. It will do separate tracks. Yeah. I've used a different service called Riverside.fm that, that does. Yeah. Same thing, basically. Yeah. Same thing. It's, it's great. I mean, we get, get the best quality source material you can and that, that definitely will, will help. And I always like to lead with audio. And you, I, I noticed before we had our call, you you put a great deal of care into ensuring that the audio signal you were getting from me was clean. We had a little bit of echo, and you helped me navigate that. Thank you very much. And and that that's first because there was something I talk about in my book is you know audio, the quality of audio. And there's there was some scientific studies done where if you were to take a low grade picture think of like an, an old vintage film you know on on high contrast black and white that's pixelated and grainy and hard to see but good audio you know that that you can actually hear clearly versus the inverse something beautifully shot like maybe your canadian baking show and underneath it scratchy disturbing audio kind of nails on a chalkboard bad well it's obvious which one someone would watch longer it's it's the one 
good audio, you know, because we as humans are far more sensitive to the quality of audio, the tonality of a voice. You know, a lot of the emotion comes from that, which is why music is so important. But, you know, Matt, something we didn't talk about and, and another reason why people would hire me, you know, getting back to the perfume bottle, uh, someone who wants to level up their appearance on calls as you said, most photographers or videographers look great. One of the reasons they look great is that they're not using the the camera on their, their laptop. They're piping the video feed in through a separate camera, which will typically be a removable lens camera set at a, a further back distance and with the lens on it that has a much more uh, portrait style and, and pleasing aesthetic. And I've got a funny story for you about doing a web call with, with lenses. <laughs> um, I got hired to uh, shoot a web appearance for Kate Beckinsale at her house here in LA. And anyone who wants to see the, you know, a screen grab from the video can see it on my Instagram at Adrian Roop. But I, so I was hired by a nonprofit who had her as a, a spokesperson. And I went over to, to her house. And, and first they sent me over because she was just going to take a call on a webcam, much like, you know, most people would just use a webcam on a laptop. And they wanted me to just help her with her LED lights to, to get her looking better for the web call. So I went over to, to help this nonprofit and I looked at how she had it set up and, you know, her, her team had set it up on a, on a laptop and, you know, a couple of little LED lights and I, <laughs> my, the, my cinematography bug came out and I just said to the assistant, this won't do. <laughs> right. And I took all of the LED lights and I grabbed them and I stuffed, stuck them in the corner. Like we're not using any of those, you know, none of the ring lights and the stuff that she had. Um, and I'm bringing my gear in from the car. I had it all in the back of my wagon. And so I brought everything in and had it set up. And I think that maybe it surprised her. She, she'd had like an hour or, you know, an hour or two of, of great hair and makeup done. She was looking stunning. She just looked so, you know, absolutely gorgeous uh, as she does. She's one of the most beautiful women in the world. And she saw how I'd changed everything and canceled the shoot and <laughs> said, Nope, this wasn't, you know, pre-agreed and we hadn't, you know, approved this and tested this and fair enough, you know. Um, so she said, that's it. We're not, we're not doing it. And I lost the, the shoot uh, for this nonprofit and they called me. They were so apologetic. They said, oh, I'm so sorry. She canceled on you at the last second before you could shoot and we'll pay you anyway. And I said, that's okay. You guys are a nonprofit, you know, give me a hundred bucks for gas and, you know, we'll call it a day. You don't have to pay me my full rate. But what I did that day was after she canceled the shoot, I called the assistant back and I showed him how I had set it up and why I had set it up that way. And the first thing I showed him was my lens. And I said, look, here's a lens that I've chosen to use for this. This is a 1946 vintage Zeiss cinema lens. There's maybe a dozen people in the world who shoot with this, and it's, it's probably more popular in Europe. But it has a very, very specific aesthetic that's absolutely perfect. You know, it's a 75 millimeter, which is a really interesting sweet spot right behind the kind of hundreds that most people use for a portrait and a 50, which is a little bit more normal. And the the contrast ratio of this lens is 
about as flattering and kind and gentle on a human face as a lens can be. I prefer it to any of the modern lenses specifically for that reason, you know. So I showed him that and I actually took the lens off my camera and I put it in his hand and he kind of was nervously standing there <laughs> holding the lens. Like, oh my God, you know. And then I showed him my lighting and I said, look, this is the lighting that I've chosen and it's all reflected light. None of it is direct on her face. I'm using an imported Danish reflector system called a light bridge that is very, very specific in terms of the actual quality of the reflection. And so I have my light set down low, probably around the ground level, beaming up into this giant reflector that basically acts as a huge window light that I can move anywhere. And I can position this window light so I get the exact angle for that beautiful Rembrandt lighting. And I get the, you know, the 45 degree nose shadow on the one side and the light comes across the bridge of the nose and gets both eyes and I get my eye light and it's diffused light and it's gentle and you know with that vintage lens it just was gorgeous you know so i showed him this is the way i'll do it and if you ask me to come back and do it with her led lights again the same thing's going to happen so just don't either don't have me back or you know (laughs) and he said wow well we've never had someone show up to do a web call with such a a detailed and elaborate setup. And, and he said, please give me your number and I'll, I'll hire you directly. And sure enough, he hired me directly. And I came back with the same setup, set it up the same way, did it again. She did her web call and it was great. And I'm so proud of that uh, shoot and that image. You know, she, she lives in this incredible, you know, mansion in, in Beverly Hills and has this amazing, very, very unique artwork behind her. That's almost like a metallic sculpture thing on the back of the wall. And it has this amazing way of, of, you know, light and shadow and reflecting light. So in the background with that particular lens, it set up my background for her call just perfectly. You know, I could not have uh, been happier with it. So that was amazing. It was a real highlight, but that's the way I do a web call. You know, it's, it's, it's involved. (laughs) So I come over for a camera Right. Well, so, I mean, this is obviously, I mean, I mean, it's a great story and it's a story of kind of the best way to shoot something, right? For someone who obviously has, has essentially unlimited budget. Yeah. I'm going to take an hour to set it up and I'm going to bring 200 pounds of equipment. Yeah. Right. But I think, you know, if somebody's just trying to improve their, you know, their Zoom calls for their B&I meeting or something like that, right? I mean, very basics is, is you know, lift the camera up to eye level, get some lights, worry about your background, make sure that you don't have a giant open window behind you or something, right? Don't go Edward Snowden. Make sure you're not backlit. Yeah. You could find some interesting stuff about lighting for Zoom calls and stuff online pretty easily also. But I wanted to get back. We're, we're kind of running short on time. But before we go, I wanted to talk a little bit more about shooting really short video, especially like, you know, TikTok reels, that kind of stuff, YouTube shorts. You're looking at like 15 seconds to 30 seconds, usually, you know, one and a half minutes on the higher end. Uh, I know YouTube, you can go a bit longer. And something that actually I read on your website before that I thought was really interesting was that you'd said that you know, everybody's mobile device records high res video and has a great camera. 
And so how come all these platforms aren't filled with beautiful videos, but really they're filled with crap, right? I mean, there's very few that are really well done. There's, there's getting to be more, but so I think is there, and, and obviously people can get your book to learn more, but is there a few tips we can give people to kind of get started and say, you know, this is going to improve your TikTok videos kind of thing? Yeah, a hundred percent. Look, TikTok is its own animal. And, and obviously it's amazing for, for a, a bunch of reasons, but something I, I want to kind of pivot a little bit into one of your previous podcast guests talked about LinkedIn and they, they talked about LinkedIn as your kind of like personal branding billboard. I like this because it's a little bit more specific than TikTok in terms of why people do it. And what a lot of people don't realize with LinkedIn is that you can have a profile video. Yes. So the same place where you have your picture if you you can upload a video and if someone clicks on your picture, you're allowed to upload a 30 second video. I like this because it's a hard constraint. I feel like 15 seconds is a bit short unless you're doing something more TikTok-y, which, which is its own thing. But 30 seconds is a really nice sweet spot. It's a good amount of time for an elevator pitch. And I think that everybody should have a LinkedIn profile video. And the interesting thing about it is, is LinkedIn you can only upload that video via the mobile app on your phone and a video that's in the, the, your phone's library. You can't upload it via your computer. And I think that they've done that because they want more of a kind of natural user-generated type feel. They want to encourage people to just record a video with their phone and upload it. I've not yet tried this, but I'm fairly sure that you could actually shoot a great video with a cinema camera and do hair and makeup and do it the right way. And then, you know, compress that video out, put it on your phone, like the same way you would have as though you'd record it on your phone and upload it to LinkedIn via the phone's, you know, photo album. And I think that's such an interesting thing to do. But if someone were to do that, irrespective of whether they're going to record it with their phone or whether they're going to use a camera, and do it, you know, on a higher level. Something I talk, uh, have in my book, this is a bunch of different quotes. One of them I like is by Dale Carnegie right up front. He says that, remember that when you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with creatures of emotion, not creatures of logic. And I think that's maybe one of the reason why, why a lot of the videos that people upload or, or a lot of uh, the, the type of clients who might be helped by my book, they upload videos that are more logic, less emotion. You know, they talk about their what. Here's the list of things I'm going to do for you. Rather than let's get to the emotion of the matter. So that I think is going to help anyone with their 30 second elevator pitch is, you know, the Carnegie method of dealing with the emotion rather than the logic or the Simon Sinek idea of dealing with the why rather than the what. That's what I would do. And then to get the video looking better, what I would say is don't expect to hit a home run on your first try. Like anything, you know, give yourself a, more of a runway, do it a couple of times, uh, experiment, shoot a, a new video once a week, every week and do it for a month and see what your, your fourth video at the end of the month looks like versus your first. Right. I do like the idea of if you're going to do video on a regular basis, you know, to promote your business or whatever it is that you're using it for, I think batching it is pretty important. You know, 
if you're going to set up all the lights, you don't, I'm going to assume most people don't have room to make their own little video studio, right? I mean, some businesses do. They just, you know, stock room B is now video shooting room B. But if you have to take all the stuff out to do it, right, and set it up, set it all up, shoot all your videos for the whole month, take it down, put it away, right? Get it all done at once. Absolutely. Um, and another thing I think is, you know, to have somebody maybe who has some video background, video editing skills, that kind of thing, take a look at your videos that you've made. Like once you kind of get a few under your belt, then take it to someone and say, hey, here's a couple of my videos. Could you, you know, let me know what you think? And they could say, hey, maybe you need, you know, maybe this, this part of your lighting's not great or you need to add this or, you know, there's there's some you, you could put some kind of filtering or post-processing on it to make it look nicer, smoother, whatever it is, right? But yeah, I think getting a second opinion sometime is something that a lot of people don't do. And, you know, learn about it. Get the book. Talking about your book. If somebody wants to get a copy of How to Make Videos That Influence People, where's the best place for them to get it? It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon as a as an ebook that you can read on your favorite ebook player. Perfect. And I got it on Kindle and uh, just had it delivered to my phone. It's handy. Great. Adrian, thanks a lot for being on the show today. And uh, we got to wrap it up. I know we could talk about video all day, but <laughs> hopefully we'll get some more people out there shooting videos and and making them look good. Thank you so much. Thank you for the for the conversation. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And I wish uh, all of your listeners uh, good luck with their videos out there. Keep shooting. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.